0: Listening to the Voice of Insurance. I'm Mark Gagan. When I book an interview guest in for the show, it's usually at least a few weeks and often a few months in advance. When I open up my diary, I can see them lined up ahead. I build up expectations in my mind about what the interview is going to be like. It never turns out the way I think. Today is a case in point. I've got to know David Croom Johnson of Aegis London over many years while covering the global insurance market. I knew he was great company and was often outspoken in private, but I didn't know what he would be like with the microphone turned on. I had a fear that he might be a little more tame than he is when the recorder is not switched on. Well, I needn't have worried. I'm happy to report that the David who showed up for the interview was the exact same David that I know from all my meetings and encounters with him in and around the London market over the past decade. He is someone who has to be true to himself in all situations. And because he runs a consistently top performing Lloyds business, which is in a very select group of managing agents that Lloyds has allowed to be regulated on a light touch basis, this makes for a fascinating and valuable interview. The market and David's view of what to do about Lloyds' mediocre and major underperformers may surprise and shock you as being extraordinarily tough, but his long experience, wisdom and foresight are what really shine through in this encounter. From how to behave in a hard market, to lean underwriting models, from the short-termism of private equity to the casualty crisis and the eventual uberization of the specialty market. Chances are David has thought about it deeply and has a strong and unequivocal view on it. Please enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners?
1: Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claim service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business. With Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance companies' own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyds partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyds fall in behind us, or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter. And if the claims falls apart, the underwriting is a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims.
0: Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support. And we'll get on with the podcast. Well, David, thanks so much for giving me the time. You must be incredibly busy. Aegis London has been a roaring success. What's the secret? <laughs> Mark, that's very flattering of you. Aegis
2: has been a, in the privileged position of being a top quartile syndicate for the last, I think, 15 years. But I think the success always eventually comes down to the people. But there are some other dynamics to that, I think. We as a business have got a low volatility risk profile, which means really we don't punch above our weight. And really, Coming from a mutual heritage, I think that is appropriate. So we don't punch above our weight. We don't have massive risk lines and over-reliance on excessive loss reinsurance, for example. We don't have a big cat profile, and we don't have a big, what I'm going to call, volatile class profile. So we don't have big energy profile or big catastrophe profile as a proportion of our book. So we try to be a balanced and diversified specialist insurer. And I think with that and good people and an empowering culture, I think it's. uh, I'd rather be a, a lucky underwriter than a good underwriter, but I think you do make your own luck in this world.
0: Just to clarify about punching above your weight, so what you're saying is that you take the risk that's appropriate with your capital base, and you don't try and stretch that capital really far and wide with lots of leverage on reinsurance and other things. And also, you're not in very volatile classes, partly because of that.
2: Yeah, so I'm not a. I don't have a profile that requires, say, if you take private equity, that might want returns on capital of say 15 to 20 percent. A mutual capital provider would prefer consistency of return so we're trying to deliver that so our profile tends to be lower
0: than others in the marketplace so it's much more about accepting lower returns but having less surprises for your owner correct well you've mentioned about being a mutual i wanted to ask you specifically about that is this something about mutuals mutuals have had a very good covid crisis for example i think certainly anecdotally Is there something about being a mutual that encourages perhaps long-term thinking and and not not this sort of quarter-on-quarter or high returns and getting in and out and all that kind of stuff? Is there something about it?
2: Yeah, I think um, being privately owned and up in a quieter cul-de-sac, we don't have the pressures of quarterly earnings. We don't have that pressure of creating greater shareholder value to the degree that uh, maybe the listed vehicles do. So it does give us a sense of being able to set longer term objectives and longer term paths for us. So yes, you know, our mutual demands a lot of us in terms of a proper understanding of what we're going to deliver in terms of returns on capital and returns on equity. But they do allow us to
0: take a longer term horizon in our thinking. Well, we've got a really interesting marketplace at the moment. What sort of hard market is it? People often don't want to call it a hard market, hardening market or whatever, but certainly prices are going up. How do you characterise it? Is there a capital shortage or is there no capital shortage? Is it just more discerning? And how long do you think this could last? Let's start with it. it, it it's a hardening market yeah, and it's coming off a low
2: base. And what I mean by that is rate adequacy is returning and underwriters should hope for and, and expect better underwriting returns in the market. Capital, it's a really interesting point in time at the moment, I think. I think the capital is becoming more discerning. I think it is. there is probably no shortage of it. I think, um, for instance, the pension funds are looking for diversification themselves and insurance is increasingly becoming a, another asset in their investment portfolio. But I think that capital is becoming more inquisitive and more careful in its selection of which partners it wants to invest in. And so I think if you've had a run of success, then there is no shortage of capital. If you have had a mixed bag of results or a poor performing business, capital is very, very difficult to come by. So some of the capital raises that are going on in the moment are quite tough for a number of businesses
0: mentioned about rate adequacy, you said a very low base, so implying there was rate inadequacy before. How far do we have to go before you're happy across the board that the pricing that's available is good for making a profit long term over the cycle?
2: Our analysis would suggest that we're back up in terms of rate adequacy in the, in the specialist insurance sector to about 20, 20 12 levels, which was a good market for all of us. And that should deliver good returns. So in the voice that I have in front of my board and with our shareholder, I think we're in the best market for a decade. But is that um, back at the glory years of 03, 04 or post-Katrina Rita Wilmer? Not yet.
0: So there's a way to go. So you can be satisfied to say that if I grow into this market with this rate adequacy, this is good, I should be increasing my profits, all things uh, equal. All things being equal. We know that they so rarely are, I know. (laughs) I,
2: I think the sequitur to that is that you've also got to think about what's happening to reinsurance and retro market rates. They're hardening as well, and it depends on the pace of that. And it depends on will direct insurers such as Aegis be forced to retain more risk or or would actually wish to take on or retain more risk in this current climate.
0: I would assume from your earlier answer that you're more of a conservative player that you wouldn't want to retain more just because reinsurance has got expensive and optimize your capital that way. Would you go with the flow and buy the same amount of protection, but then try and pass that on to the original insurance customer?
2: Yeah, I'm not going to be fenced on the question because I think there's a balance here. You will retain more risk if you believe that your rate adequacy is at levels that uh, would generate significantly higher profits. So you've got to be selective as to where you want to retain more risk. And yet, you know, we've got a a panel of reinsurers who've supported this business through thick and thin. And uh, I think they should, if they wish to, should be able to avail themselves of the upsides that we may be enjoying now so we will try and retain a a good proportion of our pro rata support across our board and then see what our excessive loss underwriters are asking us to retain in across our catastrophe and risk programs
0: now would it be the time to be that great partner or it's a difficult word it's probably a dirty word to say the broker's friend dirty two words to be more friendly to be someone who is open for business and who's not pushing for the extra 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 rate on top of the rate if you're happy with the adequacy to be happy to be just doing more business at rate adequate prices that are okay not as good as 03 04 bonanza years which never of course last that long or would you be thinking well i don't want to leave money on the table i should be hard still be hard now and be hard and po-faced and and difficult um, or not yeah reputations are made at this point in the market
2: i think um Memories are very long in the broken community when you have behaved unreasonably in in the hardest part of the hard cycle. So I think um, we want to be proportionate in our responses. Uh, We want to ensure that uh, we're not uh, seen to be taking advantage of the hardening market to the degree of pushing rate beyond which where we would think it would be appropriate or adequate to deliver solid returns for us and for our shareholder.
0: Because um, when the boot's on the other foot, then brokers always remember, and then you suddenly find you're not getting the showing you used to have.
2: Yes, their, their memories can be very, very short, in, in, in like, like a goldfish in, in the hardening phase, and then like an
0: elephant in the softening <laughs> phase. Okay, within this market, where are the best opportunities when you're looking at your budget the next year, you're thinking, wow, I really want to put a lot of chips on that segment of the market? I'm not going to go into the details of those classes because uh,
2: I don't want to uh, publicize some of the things that we're doing in certain classes, but I certainly feel there's a fantastic opportunity for us as a market to digitalize what we're doing. And I think those who are prepared to invest in corralling their smaller SME business and their more homogenous portfolios into digital platforms, I think there's was lots of advantages there to be had in terms of efficiencies, in terms of a lower intermediation cost and better value at the end of the day for our clients.
0: You've been investing in that sort of platform for four or five years now, haven't you? What sort of results have you been able to get out of it, particularly in terms of stripping out unnecessary costs?
2: The cost piece is a bit of a holy grail. It is happening, but it's happening probably at a pace that uh, it is slower than I would like. But Is that that because of of
0: the run rate of investment you have to keep investing and reinvesting any savings in better kit?
2: Yeah, I think there's a bit of that, but I think we've managed to scale our platforms now to something that is really worthwhile. And for me, the exciting piece is that about 70% of the business that we've got on our digital offering, Opal, online platform Aegis London, is new, new business to us and new, new business to the Lloyds market. So this is business that we wouldn't have been able to get our hands on. And we we know from the uh, class profile and the offerings that we're putting out that this is good business and it's profitable business.
0: You're fully a Lloyds business. So... Are you happy at the moment that Lloyd is the platform for you to be able to put this growth down at the pace that you want?
2: Yeah, I I think we could spend half this podcast talking about where Lloyd's are, but actually for the good businesses at Lloyd's, thankfully, we're part of that cohort of what is known as light touch syndicates. Lloyd's are being very reasonable. They're encouraging us to grow. They're encouraging us to take advantage of this hardening cycle. And they are removing a burden of effort that we would normally have to put in in getting our business plans supported from us. So I, I'm pleased with the way that they're responding to the best performers in the market. I would say, of course, I think they've got a, a hell of a job to drag the poor performing businesses and even the middle ranking mediocre businesses up to a level of performance that um, is required across the market
0: do you not think that a rising tide like this will lift all of the ships or well, some of them got holes in them
2: <laughs> uh, i'm afraid some of them have got holes in them and it's not for me to comment on the performance of others but i really do think that uh, lloyds has, has got to deal with those businesses that are held under under the waterline and make it difficult for them to transact business unless there is a significant move towards rate adequacy. Because any any effect that maybe the rating agencies would have on the rating standards of Lloyd's affects us all, not just uh, those poor performing businesses. So I don't want to see that happen.
0: So in general, you're happy with the balance with the sort of the carrot perhaps for the light touch and the stick for everybody else that they've got a reasonable balance certainly sitting where you are
2: yeah it's easy for me to say this but I would like like the stick to be a club
0: (laughs) okay well I think we should have to leave it on on there COVID-19 how much of a factor is it obviously we we had we had a hardening market before COVID-19 and has it just been fueled to to a hard market fire
2: let's say I think it just gives a, another layer of uncertainty to the future. And it's not just the uncertainty with regards to the claims profile that COVID may bring to our market, but it's also, I think, the uncertainty that we may have in the economic impact that uh, COVID is going to have globally and, and what that does and, and, and how that drives our clients' appetite for insurance. And that is, again, it's that age old question of supply and demand. And, you know, it is the, the supply of insurance going to be constricted because of poor performance in the, in the specialist insurance sector? And is the demand for insurance going to wane because of the effects of COVID? It's just a, an uncertain and unclear world out there.
0: And do th- are there any signs of any new demands coming because of COVID? You um, potential new products or new extensions?
2: But I have to say this, that, you know, I think there are, there are good efforts going on in the market to develop COVID products for our client base. But those are prototypical insurance products. And uh, given rate adequacy elsewhere, a lot of capital and insurers may not wish to invest heavily in prototypical products when they've got rate adequacy in products that they know that can deliver good returns.
0: What do you feel in terms of COVID still a loss event that's still happening but from a casualty perspective do you think it's something can you outrun it in some way as a casualty? if you're a casualty underwriter for example? Gosh the age
2: old the age old principle of can you outrun losses through casualty underwriting I gotta say that there are many fools that have gone down that road in the past Mark and, uh, and let's not think that a nimble casualty underwriter can deliver anything other than good returns for his business. and uh, But I don't think it would be a good idea to try and outrun COVID losses by writing significantly larger amounts of casualty uh, underwriting into your portfolios.
0: Better to just exclude at the next renewal,
2: if you can. If you can, yeah.
0: I wanted to get your feel for a macro picture of industry reserves and particularly US casualty reserves. It's been a big story developing perhaps for the last three or four years now. And how far do you think things have got to run in that department? Or do you think we're nearly done? We've had a lot of tidying up and a bit of reserve strengthening, quite a lot of legacy deals and people sort of clearing the decks. Do you think that we're sort of ready to be able to forget about it and focus on the future? Or is more past going to come and keep biting us in the next years?
2: The answer to that is no. There is continual uncertainty around what everybody terms as social inflation at the moment. And I think there is a differential between social inflation and claims inflation. But I do feel that it's going to be keenly felt in the way that casualty underwriters have set out their stalls. I think writing large chunks of excess casualty insurance could come back and bite and hurt the reserving of those casualty markets we've got a very very low net retained casualty profile and I like that because you can build a, a spread of business without feeling as if you are constantly having to strengthen your own casualty reserves so I think that there is a way to go in in the US market in I think Bermuda has got a big casualty excess profile and whether that for them is something that they need to think about carefully as claims or social infiltration delivers bigger awards and larger claims into
0: the casualty arena. So more to come likely, you'd say? More to come, I'm afraid. We've seen capital raisings, perhaps in response to the hardening market and during the middle of the COVID crisis, particularly at the sort of endear of the market crash and response, stock response to COVID. How would you characterize those capital raisings? Do you think they've been defensive or do you think they've been genuinely aggressive and offensive so that people can make the most of the hard market?
2: Gosh, I seem to be sitting here on the fence on too many questions, Mark. you is not never is it too a, macro a,
0: for you david
2: no it's not too ma- <laughs> it's 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 one where some of those capital raises have needed to be defensive to shore up some balance sheets and then in others I think there is a a genuine opportunity for some insurers mm. and the capital raise has been there to allow them to take advantage of this better environment and better market so some of it's disguised as We want to take advantage of this great market, so we need to raise capital, where actually you're probably just plugging a hole in your balance sheet. And others are very genuine attempts to raise capital because the opportunity is there.
0: We may or may not have a class of 2020. We've had a class of 2020 news stories, but we haven't necessarily seen all the money on deposit at the Bank of Bermuda and wherever else yet if we do have a class of 2020, what sort of opportunity do you think it's stepping into? Is it something really broad or is it something just really focused perhaps in specialty and excess and sepsis lines in the US? I think that more of the latter, Mark. It's not so broad brushed that
2: we can suddenly rush into, I don't know, motor quota share or something like that. You know, I don't think it's something that everybody is... If we stick to, to our knitting and we stick to what we're good at and what we know, I think there are some good opportunities for one and all who can raise the capital to do it.
0: Do you think they've got a, a long-term situation where we can build franchises that will still be around in 20 years time like you know some of the class of 2000 2001 or will it be the sort of thing that's quite short-lived and they'll make a quick buck on the spike in rates and then as soon as everything goes down they'll have to consolidate and shut up shop.
2: Again you sort of I'm going to use the analogy of how much PE there's in in the market at the moment and PE requires shorter term returns than most so are we building businesses new businesses here that will last 20 years and still be around and still be making a solid contribution in 20 years I'd love to think so that's what my head tells me my sorry my heart tells me but I think my head says differently that you know that there are some avaricistic PE money in the market that's going to demand quick
0: returns. And I suppose, does that really matter though, David? It's just horses for courses. Some things are some things are fast and, and easy and other things are long and steady and permanent.
2: Yeah, but I, I would love to hope that we can build a, a Lloyds and build a marketplace that's got legs to it and can deliver longevity to keep us as one of the preeminent specialist insurers in the global market.
0: We mentioned about consolidation. Obviously, consolidation amongst carriers, presumably given this market is not on the cards, absolutely not, while there's so much uncertainty and so much stuff to be getting on with. But we have had consolidation news on the breaking side in a really major sense with proposed merger of Aon and Willis. How might a merger between Aon and Willis affect your business, David? Well, we've
2: always been in the slightly fortunate position of having a, a very broad spread of business coming to Aegis. And uh, so the big three, I think it was about 35% of our business comes from from the big three, whereas I think the market average is somewhere in the low 50s. So it will have an effect. I think um, when you put two businesses like that together, Aaron and Willis will now supersede Marsh as our number one producing broker to the syndicate, but uh, I think it will depend. We will sit back and we will watch what what are then the ripples of this merger and what will happen in terms of investment. In will some of the other independents be able to take advantage of that merger? Will new franchises and new broking markets open up to us? Probably.
0: Does it change anything that you do?
2: No. No, no, not really. I just think we plough our own furrow. And, um, you know, I think um, the days of paying additional commissions for wrapped up portfolios through Aon or Willis or Marsh, I think are waning. You know, I think what, if anything, the great excitement for me is is at some point, the uberization of our marketplace, this specialist sector is going to happen. And it'll be who can... Most efficiently deliver capital and products and services to the client base in the most efficient manner. Who will be the winners?
0: What do you mean by Uberization? There, that sounds very capital light. You know, this is the you know, the taxi company that has no taxis, or like Airbnb, you know, the hotelier that has no hotel. Yeah, I, I think if
2: you look at the efficiency of the, if you've got one end of the spectrum, the client and the other end the capital, i.e. the the carrier. I think that intermediary chain and the value of that intermediary chain, it is and will get chopped up in the coming years. And uh, the carrier will, by necessity, be able to get to the client more efficiently. And I think what that does and excites us is the fact that really the client itself should be able to get cheaper pricing.
0: It's not something that's scaring you as a mutual and feeling, oh God, this is all going to move, the world's going to move
2: by us. Well, you can either be part of it and be part of that exciting journey and, and develop your, your own platform to deliver this or end up being a blockbuster or Kodak and sit back and pretending the world's not changing around you.
0: Do you think there's a scope for the digitization of mutuality? It sounds like a digression. Like, we've had, and we've had obviously peer to peer type, um, insure and those sort of things. Is there something in it?
2: Digitalization of mutuality. That, that's something I haven't really
0: thought of Mark,
2: because I think, yeah, mutuals form usually because there is a lack of demand in the insurance commercial sectors to deliver the products that, uh, the mutual members need to buy. So, to digitalize that, yes, I think the products that we offer through our mutual to our members, certainly there's the scope for some of that to be delivered to them in a more efficient way. But I think it's more the SME and the more homogenous risks that'll go first.
0: On that subject, and InsurTech, we've had this sort of poster child for InsurTech Lemonade, and it's had its IPO this summer. And it's been a roaring success, trading on very high multiples. Do you think this is signal of a watershed moment for a bit like the Netscape IPO that happened at the dot com boom or something like that
2: this is where you and i will differ i just i'm staggered about that IPO i'm staggered about the multiples i'm staggered about who are the investors and what has lemonade delivered since its formation and its ability to capital raise is astonishing and i congratulate the team who've been able to deliver that capital raise But I'm going to say something very, very simple. They haven't made any money yet. And our digital platform at Aegis London, that should be a poster child for what should be going on, has already delivered significant profits to Aegis London. So I think all I would say is come back and talk to me about uh, the success of Lemonade when they've actually done something successful other than than raise capital.
0: Is it something to be aware of, though, given we've got a business like tesla which is going to have a bigger mar- you know often has a larger market cap than ford motor company and has a willing investor base so can it become a self-fulfilling prophecy that it still doesn't have to make any money but it can take over the car industries because enough people believe in it there are different investor bases seem to be from a different planet that they're tech investors rather than insurance investors aren't these people
2: you mentioned mark and you sat here and reminded us all of uh of that the tech boom of the late 90s i think uh you know, we can all all remember what happened there. And you can't build these house of cards without, at the end of the day, having some strong bricks and mortar foundations to them. So I worry about insure tech in the terms that we seem to spend a lot of time glorifying in the failure of insure tech. That, you know, we've learned tremendous amounts from what we did, but we actually didn't make any money out of it. Well. That's the harsh reality of hard-nosed insurance investment is about delivering satisfactory returns to shareholders.
0: It's just a different fundamental misunderstanding. In that model, it's so much more about just capturing millions and billions of customers, numbers on a list, and then you'll work out how to make money out of them later. But with insurance, you're saying you've got to make money all the time, otherwise you'd be bust quite soon.
2: Lemonade now needs to deliver. And as I say, come back and We'll circle around and have another conversation when we've got a track record of performance from Lemonade from an underwriting and return on capital perspective.
0: Time, but I suppose of the dot-com boom, obviously Amazon was a public company when the dot-com crash happened. You could have bought stock and obviously you, know, you would have made a huge return. But then obviously for every Amazon, there's a pets.com and everything else. that, that didn't Oh yeah, make it. yeah. There'll always
2: be winners and there'll always be losers. But, you know, I feel some of them will succeed and many of them will fail.
0: You're a people business and you understand people, biggest asset and perfectly understandable. The Lloyd's market's been through a bit of a revolution and and perhaps I suppose it has been a rude awakening perhaps as well that this diversity and inclusion issues and conduct issues have come more to the surface. We've had a culture survey and obviously we've had difficult headlines to read in the mainstream press over the last couple of years as in the wake of Me Too and we've also just had a sudden departure of a CEO due to what obviously we can only glean from a stock exchange announcement about conduct failings. Do you think that's a sign now that the sector really means business on diversity and inclusion? And it's I keep saying watershed moment, but this, if, I presume that if, if someone was putting their head in the sand and presuming that this was all box ticking and other things, that now this really would have got their attention, that the industry really means what it says on diversity and inclusion.
2: Well, I've always loved the um, saying, um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And good cultures, and by that I mean good attitudes to business life, I think are, are critically important to not just the success of those businesses, but for the moral standing of those businesses. So I, I've been a passionate advocate for DNI for a long period of time, and I'm going to st- I'm going to say, uh, uh, sometimes for somewhat selfish reasons, I think diversity of thinking is, is good for business. You know, if we've got different voices and different experiences and different ways of bringing those experiences together, not just around an executive table, but around a, a corporate body, you're going to be in a better place and a better place to make money. And from an inclusion perspective, I mean, uh, you know, I I feel the, the arguments of, I've been involved in forums of not just gender, but ethnicity for a while now. And I just wish the debate would accelerate because we still find in both the gender and ethnicity discussions and what Black Lives Matter has brought to the table for us all is a lot of rear view mirrored, a lot of it of correctly pointing out the failings of the market. But what I'm passionate about, and I think where I think the next stages of this journey must take us, is the actions that are required for change. And it's got to be the pace of that change needs to accelerate. Uh, and I think we as business leaders who care about this will try and drive that change more forcefully.
0: Some more actions, more positive, forward-looking measures.
2: Yeah, we've got to change. You know, look, we, you know, we've reviewed our DNI policies again this year and we've brought new thinking into, in, into it. We've got new focus groups involved. We've got, we want to be in a rush to make things happen because if we can deliver on this, then it's going to be good for business.
0: And uh, as a leader, you'd see it as it's your job to make this happen, and also to be a good example to everybody else.
2: Yeah, you have to set the tone. You know, we were chatting a while back, Mark, about um, return to the office, and uh, and I think we're sitting here now with I think CEOs have got to show and promote the benefits of working in a collegiate and. Collaborative and diverse and inclusive office environment, and uh, that'll get people back back to work.
0: Just for the listeners, David is in his office. We're on a Zoom chat, but uh, David's in his office. And I'm in my living room. But next time, we'll do it in your office. David, thanks so much for this talk. um It's been absolutely marvellous, I, I really, really appreciate you giving the time to this. It's been—I've really enjoyed it. It's been a very wide-ranging discussion. So, I'd just like to thank you for for giving us your time and for talking. To the of insurance and wish you all all the best in the upcoming renewals and and in business you. and I hope you come and speak to us again
2: well that's that's really kind mark I hope your listeners have enjoyed some of it and uh you know I think if we're the specialist insurance sector's got a very bright future it's a changing environment and and it's a great moment to be involved in our sector. And people, you know, I feel very passionate about what the future looks like. And I'm, I'm so encouraged by the strength of talent that is attracted to our sector and, and the quality of the younger people in our industry. And um, it's a good future for all of us, I think.
0: Well, thanks so much, David. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Thanks for listening. And once again, big thanks to today's supporter, Claims Direct Access. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www thevoiceofinsurance.com